Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could have edited that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat to authors about the social and political influences of the writing and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, we welcome Fiona McIntosh, internationally best-selling author of novels for adults and children. Today, we chat about her new novel, The Champagne War. How are you, Fiona? I'm brilliant. We have spoken twice before. This is the third time and it's just because I love your book so much. So when I knew this one was coming out, I immediately contacted your publisher and said, please, I need to read this one again. <laughs> so we spoke on episode 146 about The Pearl Thief, which I just loved, and mm. on episode 65 about The Diamond Hunter. So, um, yeah, we've, we've spoken a lot and I'm so excited to speak about The Champagne War today. because oh, no, again, it's wonderful. Oh, yeah. it's just so beautifully written and you just get drawn and sucked into the setting and oh I just love it so we'll talk about all of that (laughs) and joining me today as co-host is author Maya Linnell welcome Maya hi Danny thanks so much for having me on words and nerds it is one of my go-to podcasts well it was great to have you as a guest and it's great to have you on as co-host today because I know you are such a fan as am I of Fiona McIntosh huge fan would you be able to give us an elevator pitch for those who may not have picked it up yet? The Champagne War. Okay, without wanting to spoil anything, it's a story of a woman, um, her war, basically, her World War I. Just before it begins, her life is um, spectacular in the sense of she's newly married, um, she's looking forward to life, she's inherited um, a champagne um, um, empire, you could say, and Everything is looking sweet and then the war arrives and the entire world that she's built collapses. And um, it's really the story of the trials and tribulations of this woman trying to hold together herself, um, her life, her loves and the people around her. And it's, um, 
gosh, it's about three years' work, um, all of that um, encapsulated into those few words. Wow, and I can tell that it's three years' work because it is so intricate and we will definitely talk about that. Now, what I loved, Fiona, was the inclusion of real-life figures from history, particularly Madame Marie Curie. I just yeah. love this because I just, you know, obviously love the, the female scientists who were going against the grain and did these wonderful things when they weren't expected to. So tell us about the inclusion of Madame Mary. Curie. Well, while I was researching the book, I actually stumbled across her um, and thought, wow, what an incredible woman this is. I mean, she was from Poland uh, and went to France with her husband, couldn't speak a word of French, but was a scientist and wanted to study at the Sorbonne. So she learned French just to kick herself off and then went on to win uh, the Nobel Prize with her husband um, in physics, I think, or chemistry. I, I should get it around the right way. And then decided that's not enough. I'm going to go on and win the Nobel Prize in my own right. Um, and this is for her research into radium and, you know, the development of x-rays. And she made such a difference to the front line um, for the um, allies because she set up these mobile ambulances that she drove down to the front line and could actually give um, the, the teams who were the medical teams a better look at their patients so instead of them digging around trying to find what might be wrong she could actually say wait I will just x-ray this person and show you where um, the shrapnel is or the break is or whatever um, she made a, a world of difference and I thought you're an incredible woman and you really need to be in this story and the timing just was too perfect it was irresistible um, <laughs> And this is a story about one woman really being inspired by so many women um, who've gone before her. And, you know, um, Madame Curie was older when she meets um, Sophie in the story. So I wanted there to be all these brilliant women just inspiring Sophie and making her push forward when she felt like giving up. And I love a story where women come together and they lift each other up and inspire, encourage each other. And I think that's so important, you know, for today as well. I think that's, that's a really great thing to have in your story. Yes. It's, a t it's a sort of a story for the times as well. You know, I, I mean, I know we're all going through this pandemic and it's like we're fighting a war. It really is just a different sort of war. And I think Sophie's story um, is indicative of a lot of women who are holding families together, holding jobs down, um, just trying to keep everybody positive now and, and look at it from the best possible view. And really that's what Sophie was doing, saying, I, I know we've lost our husbands, I know, I know, but we've got our children and we've got to do, you know, she just kept everybody going in spite of her own hidden grief and despair that, you know, the reader knows about, but the other characters don't. Mm, it's so funny that when I finished reading the book yesterday, that's exactly what I thought, Fiona. I started thinking about, obviously, you know, COVID is very different to war, but I thought it's, it's a similar feeling where these awful things are going on around you and are coming at you again. You know, I live in mm. Sydney, so they're coming at us again, but you still have to keep your little bubble positive and make yeah. Christmas for your kids and, and try and stay positive and try and have a sense of normality, even though there is so many awful things and scary things yeah. going on around you, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a loose comparison. I don't of want course. to... Yes, but it's no, still a war. We're at yeah. war with something and, and mm -hmm. our enemy is invisible and our enemy is tenacious. Um, and so I think 
it can be compared and you do you do have to think about there are children who don't really understand and there are you know people who have to be looked after nonetheless and it so it does and also it's a it's so much bigger than yourself it's not yes. something you can control so you really just have to look at your life and say how can i make my life and, and the, the life of the people around me as safe and um optimistic as I possibly can. And that was really Sophie's role in this story. Absolutely. And sucking the joy out of whatever moment you can. Mm, yes. Mal, can I pass to you? <laughs> Wonderful. Look, thanks for having me, Fiona. I'm so thrilled to be talking to you. And thanks, Danny. Um, it's, I really loved the Champagne War. It had me immersed, really gripped uh, right from the start. One of the things, Fiona, that I think is the level of research that you do is absolutely breathtaking. Um, can you tell me about the process and whether you do that research first, which then defines which period that you live in, uh, which period you write in, or whether you draft and then you fill in the blanks later? Oh, no, no filling in blanks later. All the research is done beforehand. So it really begins with place for me. So I, I really do think where would the reader like to armchair travel with me next mm -hmm. and um, the readers were screaming for France again and I had to think all right well where and why you can't just say okay we'll set it in France <laughs> so um, I was sort of tossing it backwards and forwards with my editor and and I said the word champagne and her eyes lit up and she said oh, give me a story about champagne it's my favorite drink in the world and I, <laughs> I can just I can taste it already what you'll do with it so I thought well okay that's you know champagne um, you know northeastern France we can do that and so immediately as I began to read so it begins with reading um, I or order in a tower two towers of books and start reading and I realized straight away there was no other era to set this than World War one because the whole of France was just emerging from um, phylloxera which was a, a war in itself that had come through and ravaged all these um, vineyards right around the country. And the champagne fields in that northeastern at Epinay, they thought mm, it can't touch us. It's not going to come to us. But it's just that there was so much food to eat. The bug didn't need to get there, but finally it arrived and ravaged. And so these poor people were just cycling out of this um, a dreadful situation of having to pull up all their vineyards and start again and the war arrived to just ravage all over again everything they thought they'd set up again trenches and bombings and it was just such a um, time of such upheaval and trauma I thought right that is going to be the backdrop for my story so straight away I get my era um, after doing all the reading and then after I feel I've educated myself enough about something, then it's time to put my feet on the ground. And I will never write a story unless I've put my, I've walked in the footsteps of my characters first. So I've done it before they do. Um, and I have to touch it, taste it, feel it, see it, you know, get all that emotion in, inside myself in order to write the story. And the actual research is very uh, frightening for anyone who might accompany me because 
there's no plan. So I don't plan my stories. I don't know what's coming. I don't know anything about my characters. I'm just arriving into Epinay and thinking, all right, let's walk down the Avenue de Champagne and let's see what taps me on the shoulder. And I trust this. I trust this method. It works for me. And yeah, a story arrived, a character arrived and said, here I am. Um, and she arrived in the form of a real person, a real sixth generation champenoise that I honestly bumped into in the street. She was standing outside. My husband and I were walking down the street and he kept saying, is anything happening? Because this is costing us a lot of money to be on the <laughs> So, And I was saying, just be quiet, just let me absorb. And we, the Avenue de Champagne, for anyone who's been there, will know it's quite an ostentatious street. It's full of huge, sort of fabulous um, architecture saying, look at us, we're the brand, look at me, this is the brand you should be drinking. Um, so all the top houses are there. And then there's this beautiful little, almost fairy tale French mini chateau. And I was quite struck by it. And I said to him, well, if I had the choice of any of these buildings in the street, this is the one I would choose to live in. And we were taking photographs and looking at it. And I said, yeah, whoever is going to be in this story, she is going to live here. And there were these little gang of tradies and they were obviously getting ready to do work. And one of them peeled off and came over to us. And it was a woman and she, she was all, you know, dressed in jeans, hair all piled up, full of paint. And she said, can I help you? And we, <laughs> we just said, oh, sorry, you know, we don't mean to intrude. And she said, no, no, what, what, tell, tell me, what are you up to? Um, and I said, oh, we're just taking some photographs. And then I got talking. I'm a writer. And I thought I could use this um, house in my story. And she said, well, would you like to see inside? And we said, I didn't need to be asked twice. I was already <laughs> bolting. You know, she was still looking and I was gone <laughs> because I was sort of at the door. And then I thought, oh, come on, you know. And I said, I really should. What about the owners? You know, um, perhaps we should get permission. And she said, no, I am the owner. Oh, wow. <laughs> so she said, I'm, you know, I'm Sophie Signol. Um, I'm the Champenoise here. This is my house. Wow. My and she said, come on in. And suddenly champagne corks were being popped and Ian was sitting in the corner and quaffing all these flutes of champagne and he was happy. <laughs> You're like the best holiday ever. Yes. <laughs> best research trip and I sat and talked to Sophie and the more I talked to her the more I realized she is my character wow. she's a sixth generation champenoise she inherited from her father and he taught her at his knee about the vineyards about grapes about harvesting about blending about making champagne and the the romance and the history and the joy that goes into this and she conveyed that all to me and I fell in love with her and I fell in love with the fact that she's a widow raising two children running this empire on her own I just fell in love with her and so I said Sophie it's you I'm going to be writing about you and she said Give me a great love affair, please. Oh, please, can I have rampant love affair? And I said, absolutely, I can do that for you. Oh. But I sort of don't want to lose my love for my husband. And so was, <laughs> he really cornered me on that. And so I thought, I can do this, I can do this. So oh, this, that, that is the long answer, sorry. No, that is a beautiful story. And I love so many aspects of that, that she was a real person. And then mm -hmm. she says that she wants this great love affair. Like, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. You know, how can you resist? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is and she, wonderful. it was three years ago. So we started, and I've been back 
So to really answer your question, it took four trips just to Epinay to get this right. And um, a couple of trips into Paris to get the Parisian scenes right. Um, And then it needed a war historian at my side, tramping across all these battlefields. And, you know, it's, I know people think I'm just sort of smoking and sipping absinthe (laughs) on the sidewalk sort of thing, but I'm actually in, you know, jeans and boots and I'm freezing and I'm tramping across these muddy fields and learning about where exactly Charlie Nash would have been um, in this region. And my war historian is absolutely um, pernickety about me getting it right. So I can't fudge that. He's really determined that I know the exact trench. So um, it's fantastic. And it's very lovely that people are so detailed and prepared to hand over their lives to me like that. Uh, You know, it's part of the skill of being able to interview them is to to get to the heart of those people and, mm. and get that all out from them. Please tell me, Fiona, there's at least one moment with you smoking in this amazing silk frock where you are sipping absinthe. Please tell me that there's, I wish a, there there's, was, a, there's a one moment. I'll tell you what I did sip, um, and I wasn't in a silk sort of caftan, but <laughs> it really blew me away because I'm not a drinker. I'm, I don't drink alcohol. So there I am trying to learn about champagne. And I hope I can convey the champagne because I had a good teacher in Sophie and she, she really took, I could, I could taste it. You know, when she was talking to me, I thought I can taste this. She's so romantic and so passionate. And I think I bring that to the story that romance comes into the story through the champagne, not the romance, the sort of uh, between a man and a woman, but the romance of the grapes and what they're delivering into this bottle. Anyway, she, said, okay, I know you're not going to drink lots of champagne. Try this. Every region, uh, I mean, every household in this region makes its own in the backyard and it's called Ratafia. And I tasted it and it's like a sherry or a, you know, it's a really syrupy, sweet, delicious dessert wine. And I fell in love with it. Um, And so I had to bring that into the story as well, this Ratafia. Um, So I did it. I did get that moment. I just didn't smoke a lot of great, you know. It was, it was just perfect. I thought, oh, this is coming into the story for sure, you know. That's wonderful. Oh, that's great. Fiona, I think you did, Sophie, a great credit. I'm sure she would have been delighted with the book. Um, one of the things as a reader, um, I was really drawn to Sophie. I think you did such a great job of just... Thank you. You know, really making um, her endear herself to the readers. I think she was very relatable, even though she had this amazing dynasty, this fantastic background with the champagne. Um, she's not like the average Joe, but we still feel a lot of sympathy for her. Can you tell all the people who are listening that are writers some tips on how they can craft characters like that and make them so relatable, even if they're not necessarily of the same ilk as you and I? Yeah. Um, So the point you're making is that Sophie's had a lot handed to her. She's, you know, she's wealthy, um, plenty of money. um, But so you have to beat her up. You have to give her a lot of pain in her life. And so if you can recall the opening scene to this story, it is um, about the great flood in Paris, which I knew nothing about until I really started researching um, how am I going to beat up Sophie? And of course, this great flood, uh, without spoiling anything, takes something very, very precious from her. 
and leaves her um, fully traumatized. So in 1910, she's traumatized and she's quite young then. And then along comes this brilliant man with no warning. Um, she's not even planning to really fall in love or she's not even looking for someone in her life. She's quite an independent spirit and she's learned to be independent. And along comes this guy, the least person she'd expect to fall for, but she does, for all those reasons that he's the opposite of her. And, uh, and he's got her measure, you know, he's just a completely different animal to her. And so she falls in love and she marries this man and the war comes along and takes him away from her. And so you really just crush this person's spirit. You really make them feel like, what is the point? in me putting one foot in front of the other. And I remember writing that scene when she gets the news of Jerome um, being missing in action. And, you know, it, you really need to make the reader feel that pain. And so they start to feel it through the other women who've already been told that they've lost their husbands and Sophie's feeling dreadful for these people. And now it's her turn. She sees the telegram arrive. She sees the mayor coming and she knows he doesn't have to say a word. She knows exactly what he's going to tell her, but she cannot um, capitulate to her grief. She has to stay strong for the other women. And that really sets her up for a lot of pain through the story. And if that's not enough, then along comes this other sort of villainous character who's going to coerce her and blackmail her. And so you've just got to constantly punish <laughs> these people that's what it's all about creating pain and then the counterbalance is when the 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 beautiful things happen it's it's like a rush of adrenaline for the reader really to get the, the that joy that she's breaking through she's going to make it and yet even then i couldn't let her have full-blown happiness could i i mean it was very wicked and i think there's a campaign to say right well we want a second book because we need to know what happened next and i've had so many readers write to me and say you did it for the lavender keeper so you've got to do it for this one but uh we'll see we'll, well see. i know mayor and i would love a sequel so add us to that list <laughs> of people who would like a sequel to this. i've got an idea of how it might work because um i was talking to my publisher and i said i'm getting a lot of mail about this <laughs> That, you know, people are not satisfied that this happened. They want more of this. And so I said, what about this? And my editor was like scratching off her face. She said, you've got to do it. You've just got to do it. Just do it. Just oh, wow. So maybe, maybe, maybe. Oh, that's something to get excited about. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know Mayor and I, we were really interested in the Champagne storage tunnels being used as homes mm. and temporary schools and hospices. And we thought that was fascinating because there are so many elements of history that you don't know until you sort of delve into it or, you know, read books like yours. Can you tell us about these? Yeah, incredible. And it was Underneath um, the city of Reims, or Rheims, if you're French, um, and also beneath Epinay, but particularly Reims, is this network of limestone pits that were originally dug by the Romans and just used for storage or whatever. Um, and then the centuries pass and the champagne makers thought, wow, down there, this low um, beneath the ground, it's the perfect temperature for storing champagne for it to do its stuff, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, they decided that they would store their champagne in these tunnels and there are hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of it. And of course, World War I arrives and the city of Reims 
is so bombarded by artillery that I think it was only 22 houses were left standing by the end of the war. They just put up with relentless bombardment and the Germans used the most beautiful cathedral, one of the most beautiful cathedrals in the world as their target practice. Um, this cathedral has crowned all the kings of France. Um, it took two forests to build its um, roof and the lead for the roof was paid for by two kings had to empty their purses to say, right, we'll give you the money to put the lead. And it just took the first year of the war to collapse the whole thing and the lead to run out of the mouths of the gargoyles and just burn that two forests down. Wow. So it was very sad. And the people of Reims had nowhere to go, nowhere. The German army is on their doorstep. They, they can uh, backtrack to Paris, but they are all that's standing between... Uh, the Germans and Paris. And so they decide to make a stand and go underground into the tunnels. And they live there for four years. Four years they live underground, you know, having parties, cafes, um, council meetings, hospitals, exactly as you described, school, uh, parties, dances, orchestral recitals, on and on it goes. Um, they live their life underground, extraordinarily resourceful and led by women, of course. Wow, by it's women. Incredible. It's incredible. They live their lives underground and manage to raise children, give birth to children, <laughs> raise their children underground, school their children underground. Just brilliant. brilliant. It is. It's incredible. And I love how creativity is often found in these really dark situations, yes. isn't it? Well, they say need is the mother of invention. And mm. so they had no, they needed somewhere to take their children and the wow. elderly to safety. And so one bright spark must have said, let's go, let's go into the tunnels. And so they lived around the champagne. They just lived around all the champagne and just got on with it. It's, it's extraordinary. And I went down there. I was very, very lucky because normally they run tours and thousands and thousands of people are going down these into these tunnels. And I thought I can't go with, you know, a big tour group. And so um, Verve Clicquot, the company were very kind. They let me have um, 20 minutes in the tunnels alone. So I walked down these steps and I was all alone, just me. And I, I kept touching the walls and I could, I, I could feel history. I could hear voices I could, um, and this is what I mean, if I hadn't done that, I couldn't have described those tunnels the way I did, um, the smell and the atmosphere. Um, so I was so fortunate and very generous of them to let me do it because I don't know how much money they missed out on whilst I was down there doing my thing, you know. But it was brilliant, brilliant. That's great. Um, Fiona, the Champagne Wars contains a lot of emotional turmoil. And, you know, I had to reach for the tissues on many occasions. Um, I know, and you've spoken in your newsletter and in the back of the book about the fact that you were going through a really tough time, you mm. know, in, in your life as well with grief. Was it ever tempting to just set aside this book and say, I need to focus on something that's less emotional at the moment or, you know, go with a, a cold-blooded killer in one of your thrillers or something like that? Was there ever that, um, that temptation or desire to just set it aside because it is such an emotional book? Uh, no, actually. Um, I think my publisher just, it was, my father died during, um, as I started writing this book. And so I'm, I'm an only, only daughter, very close to him. And so I was, our whole family went into shock and uh, we weren't expecting it. In fact, 
I thought dad was Peter Pan and would live forever, but he was 93 and it was his time. And it was just such a shock when he went that, you know, you just don't know what to do. Everybody handles grief differently. And for me, thank goodness for this book. So I was able to just topple into this story and just pour out all my grief and all my emotion into this story. And it really worked for me. The only thing I will say, it's the hardest book I've ever had to write because I did have to keep, um, you know, because you're living your grief, you're writing your grief, you're in your grief. It was just a grief stricken book really. And um, it took five big drafts and I, that's never happened to me before. I've, I can usually send the first draft off my publisher will look at it and make some broad brushstrokes. Second draft, we go to edit. Well, with this, it was she kept coming back and saying, oh, Fiona, it's marvellous. But, and so um, it really made me earn it. But I was very um, proud that I got through it because it would have been very easy to just say, I can't do this. And the publisher wouldn't have um, batted an eyelid. They would have just said, okay, we completely understand. But... Part of being a commercial fiction um, author for all the um, writers out there is you do have to be really professional about this and you have to set aside whatever's going on in your life because there's a, an audience out there. There's a readership that's counting on you um, to come into their lives and remove their grief and their dramas and give them the entertainment they're looking for. I take that really seriously. And so I can be super disciplined and, um, I just knew I had to do it. Didn't matter what was going on in my life. It needed to be done. But also I thought, use it, use the grief. And I did. So that's what you're reading is my grief, even though it's being channeled in a different way. Mm, that's remarkable. And I've spoken to so many people these last few months and maybe because it's been a tough year and, you know, for you, Fiona, you have that extra stress as well of your father passing away. But so many people are talking about getting away from talking about process and structure and talking about putting their heart and soul on the page. Mm -hmm. And I think when you pick up a book, you can tell. You can oh, tell I think so. I if think an author so. has done that and that's really special, I think, special for the reader and hopefully helped you channel those, you know, those emotions in a positive way, I guess. Yes, and it's, it's part of um, the other thing is it's very cathartic because yeah. you're actually downloading that grief into a character um, and it, it's actually without you realising it, there's an invisible helper like an angel on your shoulder sort of saying, yeah, use that, you know, use that as you're remembering dad and crying, mm -hmm. put it, do it, put it in. And I think um, part of my job as a storyteller in commercial fiction is to unlock that emotion anyway, not only in myself, but in the reader, you've got to get the reader to unlock their emotion and hand it back to you in order for the story to really work and lift and the characters to step out of the pages um, and make it feel very credible. Mm -hmm. Fiona, why do you write the stories that you do? Oh gosh, that's a toughie, isn't it? Um, I suppose every time I think about writing contemporary or um, I just, I think I write the stories I do. Firstly, I am slightly older. So, you know, I, I hate thinking of myself as middle-aged, but I'm suddenly middle-aged, you know, and creaky. So I tend to certainly hark back to the 60s. And then I want to go further back into the films that I used to love when I was really little, which were the 40s and the 30s. And I think it was a time of great um, 
excitement and looking forward you know in the 30s no one knew war was coming again you know they thought we're done with this you know no one knew it was coming in the 20s they were they were just so relieved to be past the first world war mm. but the first world war is wonderful as a backdrop because it was such a time of um, romance and passion and people thought they were going to be home for Christmas and they weren't and they were away for four years and you never knew who was coming home and you know, it's just a time of low technology. So there weren't mobile phones. I just can't write books with mobile phones. Because I think... <laughs> That's a relief. Why wouldn't you just pick up the phone and say, he did it, you know, and so, or, yeah, he's coming back or something like that. So you just... I love low technology. I like steam trains and, you know, dial phones. And I just like the manner, the, the manners and the politics of a previous time i also like the it was a time i think through the you know 1900 to say the 40s it was a time where women were really although they were working in the background they were finding their power you know because they were keeping countries going whilst their men were away at war they were doing just about everything there was to do and then through the 50s they were pushed back down again and told now get back in your boxes the men are back and so it took the sort of 60s and 70s for women to find their way through again but that first period that I've just described that sort of um, 40 years is a wonderful time of women saying I will not conform to these social Victorian values I am going to do it on my terms I'm going to work or I'm going to wear my skirts shorter or I'm going to not wear a corset or I'm going to fall in love with this guy even though he's in the wrong um, socio-economic sort of um, group to mine. I just, I just think it was a time of great power for women and so I love writing in these periods. And I love reading about them and it's a relief not to read a novel with a mobile phone and the tension of waiting for a letter is so much better than waiting for a text, oh, yeah, right? Yeah, and the unknown, <laughs> the know, not knowing. You know, you can't find out what's going on. You can't Google and you can't, you know, you can't Snapchat. even chat. Yes, you can't do anything. So I love that. It adds such, um, yeah, suspense and tension to the story mm. and I use that all the time. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Fiona. I absolutely love your work. Look, um, we've talked about The Diamond Hunter on episode 146 and The Pearl Thief on episode 65. So it's such a pleasure to chat with you again about the Champagne War. Thank you very much for being Danny's guest and uh, for letting me tune in as well. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thanks, girls. So we'll do it again for next year, which is called The Spy's Wife. Oh, lock that in. Yes. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. <laughs>